If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, I'll be reading from verse 8 through all of chapter 18. Sometimes think maybe um, let's do a little too much Bible reading in church, and then I remember we're in church, that's what you do. So um, we have a big chunk of scripture to read, and as we go through this, um, you know it's easy to let your mind wander. Uh, I've, I've sat in the seats, I know how it goes. Um, but we also want to give our attention to what God says, and so even though this is a longer reading, it's important that we get through this all, and um, so please give your attention to God's word as we read this. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. 
And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray. Father, we've read your word, and now it's our intention to consider what it means and what it says to us. And I pray that you would give us illumination by your Spirit to understand it, that we would grasp the truths here that you want us to know, and Lord, we would not in any way harden ourselves, fixate our minds and the eyes of our heart on your truth. And even as we do so, we pray that you'd help us to see more of yourself, more of your greatness, more of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are, of course, uh, all around us dangers, threats, things that pose some sort of um, consequence to us if we fall into the hands of whatever it is that we might fear. Uh, For us, in this room, we have different things that we would consider to be threats or more dangerous than some other things. Some might think that disease, physical ailment, would be the greatest threat that is against you on all the consequences and hardship that would come from that, and maybe even the debilitating nature of it, or maybe the spiritual effect that it would have on your soul to undergo some severe affliction of health. Some of you might think of the threat of certain relationships, uh, people that are a danger to you, that you just want to stay away from, because if you get too near to them, they turn toxic against you, and it kind of sucks the life out of you, and you feel you are less of a person as a result of being around them. They pose a threat to you. Some might think of just physical dangers that are out there, 
danger of different jobs or accidents, airplanes and cars, those types of things. You fear breakdowns. You feel falling into a pit covered with leaves. You fear these types of extraordinary circumstances that might have you uh, break a leg or break your back or bring some cataclysmic event against you. Some of you might feel the threat of governments, of politicians, of leaders, of laws, and of lawyers. You see people who are elected or government policies that go against your values, and you consider that to be a threat against you being able to live the life that you desire to live. Or a leader that comes into power that is completely contrary to everything you could possibly conceive of standing for. And you feel that as a threat. Threats all over the place. The questions, of course, are, when you think about threats, what is truly dangerous, and what is the danger that is posed? For the church of Christ, there are threats that are posed against it all the time. Some of the more dangerous threats against the church that really pose a a danger to its well-being, its spiritual well-being, not so much its physical well-being, false teaching. There's the threat of those who would teach doctrine contrary to Scripture and lead many astray. That's always a danger. There's a danger within of fleshly living, the danger of our own hearts pulling us away from the true and living God, indulging us in our fantasies, our desires, and the sin that easily ensnares us brings us down. There's always the threat of that. There's the threat of persecution. That's been a threat to the church since it began. There's always a danger of people who want the church to fail. That danger may not feel as imminent in our country, although certainly it seems to be coming closer, but around the world, the church always has faced some level of persecution, threat of churches being burned down, people's Lives being taken. There's threats all over the place. And if you fixate your eyes too much on them, it can be overwhelming and you just want to hide in a cave. Israel is facing threats. They, of course, faced the threat to their existence when they were in Egypt. A pharaoh who wanted to enslave them with such oppression that they really would have no identity except for their enslavement. The threats, however, continue once they come out of Egypt, and Egypt is done away with by the Lord. And the portion of Exodus that we're in right now is seeing this nation of Israel face a variety of threats, things that really could take them out as a nation, at least from experiencing what God intends for them to experience. Some of the threats we've already seen in the chapters we've recently been through. They've faced the physical threat of lack of food and water, And that was a danger to them for obvious reasons, that they might die in the wilderness for thirst and for hunger. The Lord in His mercy abundantly met their needs, however. And so He met their physical needs, and that threat was taken care of and alleviated by the mercy of God as He provided water from the rock and bread from heaven. He cared for this nation. But that circumstance posed another threat that came out of them from within. It was the threat of unbelief. Because when they encountered those hard circumstances, they started to grumble and complain against God. And they voiced their dismay that God could possibly put them into a situation like that. And they lost their trust in God. In fact, they probably never trusted Him all that much in the first place. 
And so an inner threat came to be exposed in their hearts. The threat of unbelief, or if they will not trust God, they are probably in greater danger than when they were in Egypt. In this text, in Exodus 17 and 18, there are some more threats that come. The threat of a foreign nation that is not Egypt and desires to cut them off and devour them, probably plunder them, and eliminate the Israelites as some sort of danger that they might pose the Amalekites. That's one threat. And the obvious nature of that threat is that Israel will be defeated militarily and will no longer exist as a nation. The other danger is found in the latter half of chapter 18. And that's the danger of an exhausted leader. A leader who is stretched beyond his capacities, and as a result of that, there will be really decimation to the function and order of the people of Israel. These are twin dangers, twin threats. And we see in this passage that in God's provision, providing in a slightly different manner than we've seen him provide before, he still provides a solution to these dangers. He provides a way of escape, a way out to not be overcome by these threats. We take encouragement from this. That our God is aware of all of the dangers that could possibly come at us. And He's always watching and always able to provide the means for us to overcome whatever would truly threaten us. Not so much physically, but spiritually of abiding in Christ. He always provides for us. And so this passage is encouragement both to take heed to the threats that can come at us, as well as to the provision that God gives to deliver us from those threats. At first glance, these two passages might seem to have very little to do with each other. We've got one, a military skirmish between Israel and Amalek, and the other one is a more personal encounter between Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. And yet, after you take more than a cursory look at this text, you realize there are quite a few overlaps between these two passages. And rather than just let me force this theme of two dueling threats on you, I want you to see for a moment that there is indeed a string that kind of runs through both 17 and 18 that helps us understand that these passages are connected. Look for a moment at 17, 8. It says there, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so the text introduces the coming of Amalek and the coming to fight. In chapter 18, verse 5, it says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons. And so you've got this parallel encounter between Amalek and Jethro. And the language is the same, and the author seems to make us take note of that. Whereas Amalek came to try to fight with Israel, Jethro comes, it says in verse 7, to greet him. And ask of the welfare of Moses. And so Amalek comes to attack. Jethro comes to greet. In chapter 17, verse 9, we have another parallel. It says, Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men. And so Moses instructs Joshua, choosing. And then in 1825, we have Moses choosing able men from Israel and all the heads of the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. So you've got choosing between both passages. In 1712, you have Moses 
being brought a stone and he sits down on it. In 1813 and 14, Moses sits to judge the people. In 17.9, Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill. In 18.13, it tells us the next day Moses sat to judge the people. In 17.12, it says that Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun. It took all day. In 18.13 and 14, it says, from morning till evening, from morning till evening, took the full day. Another parallel and the final one is that in 17.12, Moses grows tired and weary. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands. In 18.18, Jethro admonishes Moses, you will wear yourselves out. These correspondences are more than coincidental. Uh, And maybe you don't care for the nature of going through that, but it shows that these passages are meant to be taken together. And some of the connections here are, again, that there is a threat in each one posed against the people of God. In both of them, two nations are represented. In one, you have Amalek. In the other, you have Midian. And in both, help is needed. Really, the theme that I see most dominant in it is that there is a threat posed against God's people. And there needs to be some solution to mitigate that threat. And so we'll draw kind of two lessons from this. The first one is the story of Amalek in Israel. And the lesson that we draw from this is that there are threat of enemies seeking to destroy us, but the power of God delivers us. There is a constant threat against the people of God in the enemies of God's people. I hope that you are aware, uh, if we look up just from the text for a moment and realize that you live in a world that has an enemy that desires to destroy you. I hope you're aware of that. If you think that you live in a time of perfect peace, you're woefully mistaken. It's a time of war. It's a time of such war that Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we're to take up the armor of God. We don't live in a time of peace. We don't live a time when everything is fine. Oh, sure, maybe things could be well physically for you and relationally for you, but spiritually, there is always a danger to you. And as soon as you try to put your feet up spiritually and relax, you are in the greatest danger that you could be. Genesis 3 sets up for us the reality that there is an enemy of God's people when the serpent slithers his way into the garden to deceive Adam and Eve. And in that moment, in a time when Adam and Eve are not corrupt and they still face a threat, it shows us that there is somebody out to destroy, to murder, to steal. In the paradigm of constant enmity between God's people and God's enemy is set up for us in Genesis 3.15, when God speaks to that serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That truth is found through just about every page of Scripture and every day of your life. That there is enmity between the lies of the evil one and the truth of God. 
There is no collaboration here. There is no making of treaties. There is just constant enmity, constant war. This war continues into the book of Revelation 12, into the book of Revelation, and we see it in chapter 12, verse 13. It says, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. It goes on in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. The war raging. That spiritual reality is demonstrated for us in Exodus 17 with this battle with Amalek. It's not as though there's not spiritual forces going on behind the scenes here. Amalek comes almost out of nowhere, almost as the serpent comes slithering into the garden. So Amalek comes and finds Israel in the wilderness. Where do these people come from? It's the wilderness. You're not supposed to have a lot of people there. And yet Amalek comes out of the woodwork to fight with Israel. What possible danger does Israel pose right now? They're an infant nation with little to show for themselves. They don't have a land to their name. They have little organization. And yet this people of Amalek comes and fights against Israel. Could it possibly be that there is an ongoing war between God's people and God's enemy? And God's enemy does not want to see the promises of God fulfilled. Here Amalek comes with Israel in the crosshairs. Israel seems to be easy picking for Amalek. Amalek's sin is pretty heinous, although it's not described in detail here. If you just flesh this out a bit, you understand that what Amalek is doing is wicked. First of all, Amalek is a cousin to the people of Israel. Amalek was a descendant of Esau. Esau, the brother of Jacob. Israel came from Jacob. And so this is family. And Amalek decides that it is going to try and go destroy family. Furthermore, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. The strategy of Amalek is to come up against the Israelites who are weary because they're in the wilderness and try to get the stragglers. He's like that predator that you see in the nature films that sees the herd of wildebeests and doesn't go for the strong ones that are in the middle of the pack, but tries to find the little weak one on the edge of the pack that can take it out. That's the strategy of Amalek here. It's going to the, those who are lagging behind, the weak and the frail of Israel, and it wants to cut them off from the rest of Israel and take them out. If you allow a bit of spiritual application for a moment, wouldn't that be an appropriate tactic of our enemy? To look for those who are the weak ones, who are lagging kind of on the periphery of the gathering of Christ's people, who are not really partaking in the fellowship and partaking in the Word and not partaking in all the blessings and graces that come as a result of abiding in Christ. And they're the ones who kind of say, I can put off reading the Bible until next week. 
I can put off praying. I can put off fellowship. I can put off following Christ until later. I can indulge in this sin for now. It won't hurt me. Christ will forgive me later. Aren't they just prime, low-hanging fruit for the enemy? Amalek comes to those who are lagging behind. And it says again in Deuteronomy 25, 18, that he did not fear God. Amalek had no fear of God, even though this people should have. I mean, Israel is the group of people that had just been brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Egypt was decimated. Egypt, most of its army lay at the bottom of the Red Sea at this point. Chariots gone. It was ruined as a nation. And yet Amalek, for some bold reason, decides, I can take this people on. They're no match for us. And as they make that decision, it reveals that their heart does not fear God. They think we'll be the ones that can take this group. So Amalek comes, fights with Israel while they're in the wilderness at Rephidim. And the response to this is a bit surprising. Because in verse 9 of chapter 17, Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. We haven't heard something like that yet in the book of Exodus. So far in the book of Exodus, it's all been wait on the Lord. He will bring hail, he'll bring gnats, he'll bring flies, he'll bring the water. Wait on the Lord. You don't need to fight. That's been the the mantra so far. But here something shifts. It's new. Now they're told, take up arms. Go to battle. Get in the fight. Probably a few reasons for this. One of the reasons is you note that Joshua comes on the scene. The man who needs no introduction. And he gets no introduction by Moses here. It's just Moses said to Joshua. He has such a reputation that he's likely known by this point. And he's told to choose these men for battle. If you read on in the Bible, you know that Joshua is going to be the man that is going to lead Israel through the conquest of Canaan and lead Israel into many battles. So it seems like the Lord is giving him opportunity to get some experience with the sword and leading the army of Israel. So now Israel takes on this kind of more normal approach to defending themselves against threats. The normal approach being warfare, taking up arms. And even though it's a normal approach, that does not mean that God is to be left out of it. And this is a very important point. Even though Israel is now going to take up arms, they cannot leave God out of what they are doing. If they do, it will be disastrous for them. So Moses goes on and tells Joshua, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. The key word there is tomorrow. Maybe it just seemed like you know that's a, what the time of battle should be. It would be tomorrow. But I think there's a little bit more to this than just noting the timing of it. 
because tomorrow has been a key idea throughout this book so far in the administering of the plagues. Tomorrow was the time when the frogs were going to come, when the flies are going to come, when the livestock are going to die, when the hail is going to come. God says in Exodus 9.18, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it has been founded until now. And that happens with the livestock dying, the coming of the flies. Tomorrow this is going to happen. And it sets it up so that Israel and Egypt will know that as this event happens, it is not some random event of nature, but it's rather God who controls all time in ministering His perfect plan. So as Moses says, tomorrow, that should ring some bells for us, the reader, as well as Joshua, the fighter, that that means God's going to do something tomorrow. It's not just, I need a good night's rest before I stand on the top of the hill. It means God is going to do something. Not only is this happening tomorrow, but also as Moses is going to stand on the top of the hill, he says he's going to do it with the staff of God in my hand. Moses is going to take that staff of God to the top of the hill. It's that staff that was with him since Exodus 3 when God appeared in the burning bush, the staff that is thrown down and turned into a serpent, that staff that is used to be stretched out over the Nile and turn it into blood, the staff that is stretched over the waters of Egypt so that frogs come forth, the staff that is stretched out so that gnats come forth, Moses' hands which are stretched towards heaven so that the hail comes, Moses' hands stretched towards heaven so that the hail is removed, Moses' hands stretched out so that the locusts come, Moses' hands stretched out so that the darkness come, and then the staff stretched out so that the sea divides. And so as Moses says that he's going to take his staff in hand, Joshua and all the Israelites should know tomorrow God is going to do something. And the point is as things begin to shift for Israel, as they now take up arms against their enemies and have to now fight and wield the sword, they must not think that they do this in their own strength or that victory comes by their own power. It'd be so easy to do that. After all, Joshua and the men that he chooses will have swords in their hands that they are wielding against a real enemy. Real sword thrusts. Real battle. Real hand-to-hand combat. It would seem so normal, so human. We face that same thing. The kind of ministry that God has given us does not have the immediate appearance of the supernatural to it. Joshua might be thinking, as well as his soldiers, couldn't God just rain down some fire right now? Couldn't he just make the Amalekites topple over? But God's doing something. He's putting responsibility, a sense, in the Israelites' hands. The kind of ministry that we have is, is so normal. What do we do? Well, we open our mouths and encourage each other. We take our eyes and we read Scripture. We open our mouths and we pray to God. 
We invite people over. We tell people about Jesus and what he did on the cross for their sins. We do all these, in a sense, seemingly normal things all the time. We listen, we read, we hear, we think. And yet we might be prone to think with all this normalcy, all of this us doing things, that the improvement of the situation or the outcome of it might be dependent on the things that we do. But Moses was standing on that hill with his arms raised to make it crystal clear that the victory and accomplishment of that battle depended not on the Israelites on the field, but on the provision of God in heaven. This is what they are to learn, and it's what we're to learn. When Moses' hands were raised, Israel prevailed. When his hands lowered, the Amalekites prevailed. Why in the world would that be the case? Well, because there's a God in heaven who wants to make it plain that he's the one who gives the victory. The Israelites are still fighting regardless of the situation, but it's God who determines the outcome. And so as we think about all of the normal things that we do, sharing of the gospel, the praying of prayers, the fellowship of the saints, we might think, well, the outcome depends on us. My friends, it's not the case. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord accomplishes the purposes for which you intend inviting someone over for a meal, or praying your prayer, or sharing the gospel, or reading the scripture, it's in vain. The glory and the credit goes to the God who gives the power And yet, in this very real story, Moses gets tired, and he can't hold his arms up, and he needs help to accomplish the very holding up of his arms that allows Israel to prevail. I recall in high school, I had a health class, um, which I don't remember anything else about that health class except for this one thing. It was about peer pressure, and the teacher put us into groups of four or five people, students each, and the, there's a contest in place. And what the contest was is that everybody in the group had their, hold their hands above their head. And if anybody in the group lowered their hands, the whole group was out. And so the last group standing, of course, wins. And so it becomes a matter of peer pressure within the group to encourage people, keep your hands up because we don't want to lose. If you ever held your hands above your head, it gets tiring really, really fast. And our group was really good at peer pressure, so we won that contest. <laughs> but there's only so long that you can keep your arms up. And Moses couldn't do it because the battle is going on throughout the day. But there's Aaron, and there's her. And they bring a stone for him to sit on, and they hold up his arms with the staff in his hand. What a wonderful picture that is to us. Because although the things that God has called us to do in some sense are normal, the Christian life is exhausting of our strength. And certainly our faith ebbs and flows in its ability to continue to seek the Lord. And we face dilemmas that may bring us to the point like Paul was where we may even despair of life itself. And what do we need in that moment? We need people around us who hold us up. 
who fulfill the law of Christ, as it says in Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens. Aaron and her just meet the physical needs of Moses in that moment. But it's such a wonderful picture of how we need to bear each other's burdens and hold each other up and support each other through this, recognizing ultimately that all the strength and all the outcome is from the Lord. For Israel, the outcome is victory. Joshua, it says in verse 13, overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Israel needed to remember this. And so the instruction is given to Moses in verse 14 to write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Certainly Joshua is going to need to remember it. He's going to be fighting lots more battles. And so he needs some remembrance of what God has done. But he also needs to remember what God says at the end of verse 14, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Although the Amalekites were defeated that day in battle, the war wasn't over. There was more to go. The Amalekites still existed. And so there needed to be some promise, some guarantee that the ultimate victory was going to happen. This is what God says. He will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He will be victorious ultimately. We take that kind of courage from what the Scripture says. We know that Christ issued the decisive blow at the cross where he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and yet we still have Satan prowling around seeking who he can destroy. But we know how it ends. We know that ultimately Satan will be cast into the hell of fire and kept there for all eternity. The ultimate victory is coming, but there's more battles still to go. And we need to remember this. You don't have time to go through all the details of these verses, and so you can look at them in greater detail on your own. We want to move on to the second lesson that we learn. We learn not only does God provide the power to deal with the enemies that come from outside, the Lord protects us from the dangers and threats that come from inside. He helps us. And he helps us in sometimes very normal ways. Here comes Jethro. Jethro of Midian, another relative of Israel through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. Midian is um, a nation that you'll see throughout the Old Testament, but here we got a good representative of Midian in Jethro. And it shows us that God's intention is not to just utterly destroy all the nations, but to fulfill what he says in Genesis 12, verse 3, when he says that he's going to bless those who bless Abraham's descendant and curse those who curse him. Well, Jethro comes and is a one who brings blessing. And so he is a man who is blessed. And as Jethro comes, he hears of all the good things that God has done for Israel. He worships God. He brings sacrifices and joins in the praise of God in kind of a communal meal. He seems to be a Gentile who is converted, understanding that there is Yahweh and him alone who is greater than all the gods. But Jethro comes with more than just praise. He comes to also help Moses as he sees this dilemma that they're facing. The dilemma is very easy to understand. Moses, wake up. There's about two million people there. And he, as the singular leader of Israel, has to face all of the problems that people bring. And in case you were unaware, when you have people, you have problems. 
And if you have more people, you have more problems. That's just the way it goes. And Moses has about two million problems. It's not the way I think about you guys, by the way. (laughs) Moses sits down in the morning. The people come to him with their problems. And he settles disputes. Not only is he settling disputes, but he's also teaching them, it says in verse 16, the statutes of God and his laws. He's instructing them. The law of God is about to be codified in the rest of Exodus. We're going to see that in just a few chapters. But for now, it doesn't mean, even though it's not codified, God is without instructions for his people. And Moses is teaching the people how to live, maybe so that they'll have less problems. They come from morning till night. And Jethro perceives this, and he asks Moses in verse 14, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses tells him what he's doing. And then Jethro says in verse 17, what you are doing is not good. That picks up that idea that's presented to us in the early chapters of Genesis. When God creates the world, he says everything is good. Then he sees man and he says it is not good that man should be alone. Moses is here alone. And Jethro has the insight to recognize this is not good. And the reason it's not good, he says in verse 18, the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. There is a danger here. And it's a real and present danger for Israel. And the danger is that Moses, as their leader, is going to be exhausted. Do you know what exhausted leaders do? They start just kind of smacking around the people. They get bitter towards the problems. Why are you messing up again? Why do you have to do that again? I don't have time for your problem. I have all these other things going on over here. I can't deal with you right now. And it just breeds this bitterness. And then what does that breed in the people? He doesn't have time for me. And so I'm not going to listen to him. I've got this problem with this other guy. I'm going to go smack him around now because I feel kind of ticked off. And then that makes a bigger problem. And soon nobody's getting along. And what happens to Israel? They're just eaten from within. This has to change. It is a real threat to the people. The solution is so practical. And Jethro gives Moses advice. He tells him, listen to me. God be with you in verse 19. He says, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. It's not that Moses is off the hook. He's not going to have a perennial vacation now. He still has to represent the people before God, settle the big cases for them, but also there's going to be help. Verse 21, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. Let them judge at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. Just as Aaron and Hur bore the burden 
holding up the arms. Now Moses needs others who can help him in this case. The men that he's to appoint are to be able. That means they're to be competent for the work they're to do. They're going to be from all of the people. It's not a select clique that gets this responsibility. They're to fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom. They're to be trustworthy, which means they're reliable. They won't be found sleeping on the job. And they're going to hate a bribe, meaning they're not going to be influenced by impure money coming into them to make them decide in favor of one over another because they received a bribe. Well, Moses puts this into practice. He listens, and it works well. Verse 24, he listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. He chose able men, appointed them, they judged at all times, and the hard cases they brought to Moses. And in a moment, Moses' plate is cleared from all of this peripheral stuff that others could deal with so that he can focus on the main thing. Now, certainly there are wonderful lessons there for administration within a church and how it should operate, and not everything should come to a single person within the church, but I want to be careful about trying too clear of a correspondence between Moses and any individual in the church, because really the biblical comparison in the Bible is not between Moses and a pastor, but the comparison in Scripture is between Moses and Christ. That's the comparison that's drawn in Hebrews. And Hebrews tells us that we have one who is greater than Moses. We have Christ. There is no individual in a church who should elevate to the position of Moses. That's dangerous. Because we already have one head, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, unlike Moses, does not grow weary and does not need his hands to be held up by mere men. He, unlike Moses, is not limited in addressing the matters of the church. He can handle all the prayers that come to him at any time, day or night. And so we must not draw too close of a comparison between any man in the church and Moses, the comparison with Christ, and he is greater. Christ is greater. Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus Christ, unlike Moses, did not need his arms to be held up by Aaron and Hur. Jesus Christ, unlike Moses, had his hands held up to the cross by nails. And there he offered himself willingly, not to intercede for victory over the Amalekites, but really to be treated like the Amalekites were, to receive the punishment and condemnation that the enemies of God deserve. And so Jesus, as the great shepherd of the sheep, doesn't hold a staff over a battle that's being waged. He rather was put on a tree whereby he became the curse of God to intercede for his people to save them from their sins. Who's greater? Moses or Christ, well, clearly it is Christ, and through his atonement at the cross, we, his disciples, we, his sheep, are cared for, are protected, are delivered from the ultimate threat of sin and death. We, in Christ, experience the blessing of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation with God, of deliverance from the enemy. We, as we abide in Christ, will be delivered then from false teaching. We, as we abide in Christ, will experience his power and his greatness and his help. 
Christ is the one always who delivers us from the most imminent threats in the church, and we always look to him. It doesn't mean there aren't practical steps that we take, but Christ, the greater than Moses, is the one to whom we look, and he is our deliverance. He's our shield. He's our rock. He's our refuge. We put our trust exclusively in him. And if you go to him, you'll find refuge, and you'll find protection in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us such a great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who stretched out his arms for us to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Oh, what a great Savior we have. We thank you that he lives in heaven ever to make intercession for us, that even now he's at your right hand. He is our substitute. He is our representative. He's our leader. He's our Lord. He's everything. He's our rock and our refuge, our protector. And we thank you, Father, for giving us Christ Jesus and help us to abide in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And Lord, as we live in Christ, help us to bear one another's burdens and rely on you for the victory. Well, Father, we thank you too that you'll bring us ultimate victory in Christ one day when he returns. Lord, we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.